I'm going to ask you to turn to the Old Testament book of Haggai. If you don't know where it's at, the best way to uh, help you find it is go to your table of contents, look up the word Haggai, and you'll see it on uh, uh, the table of contents where you can find it. It's at the end of the uh, Old Testament. It's a small book. In fact, it's the second shortest uh, book in the entire uh, Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible in the pew racks in front of you, and you're going to find that on page 791. Page 791. And for the next five weeks, including today, for the month of June, we're going to be investing our time looking at the book of Haggai. And we're going to be looking at this Old Testament prophet's words that he receives from the Lord. And we're going to do so, these two chapters that he's written under the headings of Consider Your Ways. And as you can see in the logo, we have a decision to make. Are we going to choose God's business or our own? That's why those two doors behind me represent is a part of every decision that we make in life is going to go through one of those two doorways. The big decisions that have ramifications that will span over a lifetime has to go through one of those two doors. The mundane decisions, the thousands of decisions we make every week all go through those doors. And what God is going to ask his people in the days of Haggai and us today is are we going to choose his ways or ours? I want you to take a moment and I want you to think about some of the decisions that you made this last week. Again, some of them are incredibly small. Others are really big decisions. And I want you in the quietness of your heart, just for a moment, as we embark on this journey, to ask the question this week, did you go through the door of your ways or God's this week. Don't look at anybody else. Don't wonder about what the person next to you is thinking. But between you and God, did you go through the door of your ways? Or did you make the decision of obedience and to choose his ways? This is what the book of Haggai is all about. And this is the journey we're going to embark upon. And so let's just take a moment. Again, I know we were just in prayer. But let's just take a moment just quietly and ask, Lord, have I been doing it your way or have I been doing it my own? Let's pray. Lord, as we come, apart, come to this passage, a part of this time together, Lord, I pray that we would do an evaluation this morning. Lord, I would ask you to do a work in our hearts. Spirit of God, we ask that you would convict us, evaluate our hearts this morning. Are we going your way, Lord, or are we going our own? Lord, evaluate the time that we spend. All of us have the same amount of time, Lord. Are we spending it doing things our way or yours? Challenge our hearts this morning with the use of our time. Lord, with regards to our talents, those gifts that you've given us, those spiritual qualities that you've enabled us to have, are we using them for our pursuits and desires? Or, Lord, are we pursuing your will with regards to those gifts and abilities you've given us? Lord, with regard, with regard, with regard to our treasure, the money you've enabled us to have our homes, our cars, our possessions, Lord. As we look at how we spend our money, 
Lord, challenge us if we're going our own way. Lord, challenge us if we're using what you have given us, what you've blessed us with, to pursue what we want. Lord, with regards to our testimony, are we speaking of our renown? Lord, if we are, challenge our hearts this morning. Are we speaking of your greatness and your glory? Lord, as we open up this book of Haggai, a book that many people may be opening for the very first time, I pray that we would know that it's all about your business. And Lord, I pray that you would challenge us in it. Prepare our hearts to be ready to hear what your word has to say this morning, to remind us of the truths of of the people, of the nation of Israel, and the struggles and, and difficulties they were enduring. And how they were called to be faithful and how, Lord, we are called to be faithful as well. We pray your blessing on the time of your word. I pray that you'll speak through me in a powerful way this morning. In Christ's name, amen and amen. Well, this morning, instead of jumping into the book of Haggai, I'm going to take a quick survey and ask the question, how many of you have ever done a study of the book of Haggai? That's what I thought. Okay, so Mario can leave. He's the only one that raised his hand. Okay, and so before we even get into the book, we need to understand a little bit of the times of Haggai. Some of you are still trying to find out where the book of Haggai is in the Old Testament. And so we need to do an introduction this morning, and this message is going to be a little different. It's going to be more on the information side of things. The Bible tells us, in fact, Jesus tells us, that we are to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there are times where we need to uh, put our thinking caps on and to be thinking through and understanding the context of the scriptures that we're looking at. And this morning I want to do that. This morning I want to give you some context because if we don't have this context, we're not going to understand what the book of Haggai has to teach us and what it had to teach the people of Israel in the days that it was written. And so I want to take some time and talk about this. Now we are told in the book of Haggai that the word of the Lord came to this prophet. And we're not going to spend any time talking about Haggai. We're not even going to get that far this morning. We'll do that next week. We'll learn about this guy that this book is written. But we are told that the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. There's a couple things I want you to understand right off the bat with regards to that. God used prophets. He used prophets to speak to a specific people in a specific moment for a specific purpose. And God has picked a select man, Haggai, to bring his message. And throughout Israel's history, God would use prophets to speak at moments in the nation of Israel's life, usually to bring them to a place of repentance. And Haggai is no different. Haggai is not going to bring words of, man, you guys are doing a great job, man, you're awesome, man, just keep up the good work. He's going to say, hey, you're missing the mark, we've got to work on some things, and this is what the Lord articulates. Now, it was very easy in in Haggai's day, as it was in the days of the prophets, for people to look at the prophets and say, wow, this guy, what an old kook, he's just talking his own thing, we don't need to listen to him. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. These aren't Haggai's words. These are God's words. And it's easy, just as in the days of the prophets, to also recognize that as pastors, as we articulate the word of the Lord, for you to say, well, that's just what Tim has to say about it. If I rightly divide the word of truth, the scripture reminds us that as I'm speaking these words, 
We're not hearing words from Tim. But in that, as we rightly divide the scriptures, we're hearing the words of God. And so we need to open our hearts. We need to incline our ears and our hearts to the word of God because God has a word just as he did in the days of Haggai. He has a word for us today. And we need to understand what that word is. To do that, we need to do an introduction today. And I want you to notice my first point this morning. As we open the book of Haggai, we come to a place in Israel's history that we see the difficult days of a once mighty nation. Haggai is not the time of Israel's history where everything was going well. Haggai is written in 520 B.C., the last half of that year. That is 500 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. And what you need to understand about the days of Haggai is this isn't a good time in the days of Israel. Gone are the days of the patriarchs. Gone are the days of Moses and Joshua. Gone are the days of, of the great accolades of the judges, Deborah and Samson and, and Gideon and the great battles that were fought. Gone were the days of the great kingdoms of, of Saul and David and Solomon. The kingdom now has become divided. And now we have wars going on and we have secular and, and, and even evil empires that are coming in and destroying the people of God. We need to understand these aren't the best days in Israel's history. To understand this a little more, just to go through this, I've got a graph that I hope you can follow. And I know it's a little hard to see, especially if you're sitting in the back. But to understand the Old Testament, and a lot of us struggle to understand human history. The Old Testament is history. This is real life and real events that are taking place. And we see that that first arrow is the time of the patriarchs. That's, that's the book of Genesis, where we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at the end of, of Genesis, we see the, uh, uh, the elevation and the uh, opportunities that Joseph is given in the time of Egypt as he helps out Pharaoh in a time of great famine. And then we know that after a while, the pharaohs of Egypt forget about Joseph and his place in Egyptian history, and that the book of Exodus begins. That's that second arrow where the people of God, the Israelites, find themselves in slavery, and those are the days of Moses. That's the days of the Ten Commandments. What happens is, is during that time, the ten plagues take place, and a great exodus then happens where Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. And we see then the exodus and the conquest. That's Moses and Joshua. That's them going into the promised land. These are good days for the nation of Israel. After 40 years of wandering, God allows them to take the promised land and to have a land flowing with milk and honey. That next arrow is the time after Joshua, after he's the singular leader of Israel, is a time of judges. We see Ruth and Deborah, Gideon, Samson, and Samuel. This is the time where God allows judges to rule. It's not the best time because the scripture tells us this is a day where men and women do what is right in their own eyes. And at that point, the nation of Israel starts clamoring, hey, we want to be like all other nations, like all other empires, and we want a king. And so they pursue a king named Saul. And under Saul, there are three kings that lead the way. Saul, David, and Solomon. These are some of the glory days of Israel. While there's hiccups along the way, Israel hits its height of uh, power and authority. These are the days when the neighboring countries of Israel would cower in fear of the name of Israel and God, Jehovah. They had known the accolades of the great kingdom that had been established. But we know that because of David's sin in sleeping with Bathsheba, 
that it would create a problem within the royal family. Bathsheba would give birth to a son, Solomon, and Solomon, who would ask for wisdom over riches and over power, would receive a great kingdom. He would build a great temple. But what would happen is, is after Solomon's reign, because of that relationship with Bathsheba, the family would be brought into disorder. And as a result of that, the kingdom would divide. And you notice then that there are two arrows. This is where the scripture gets hard. When we studied the book of Elijah, Elijah was serving under the time of two kingdoms. And so when you start reading about so-and-so was the king of Israel and so-and-so was the king of Judah, you start getting confused because you're like, isn't it one and the same? No. During that time, it was a time, if you will, of civil war. A time where the north was going one way and the south was going another. It was during that time that you have Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. Israel would fall first. We would see Israel fall under the great nation of Assyria. And as a result of that, they would be brought into a time of captivity. Later on, Judah, during the times of Isaiah and Jeremiah, they would fall uh, into captivity as well. Jerusalem would be destroyed, and that would be the days of Daniel and Ezekiel. For over 70 years, Israel would stay in captivity. And that would bring us to the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai. So where does Haggai fall into this grand scheme of Old Testament history? We're at the beginning of that last arrow there with Ezra and Nehemiah. That's where we're at. Ezra, contemporary of Ezra, I'm sorry, Haggai, a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, is a prophet who speaks to the beginning of the restoration process. But to understand that, I want to give you some context this morning. So now we have an Old Testament biblical context. We get it now, where we fall into this uh, place of human history. Now we need to understand some of the characteristics of this. I want you to notice that this time of Haggai is a time for Israel of great displacement. As I said, in 587 B.C., about 60 years before Haggai is written, the city of Jerusalem is ransacked by the Babylonians, by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard that name, no doubt, before. And the Babylonians would begin the process of what is called the Babylonian captivity. What that means is, is think about this for a moment. Here we are worshiping in our homelands, enjoying life, and an invading army comes in, and they destroy everything. Our churches, our homes our workplaces, our roads, where we buy food, where we shop. They destroy everything that is a part of our nation. And they don't just leave us there, but they take us and they put us back in their homeland. That way they can keep an eye on their enemies. And what they do is they destroy our way of life and then they take us back to their homeland. This is what's going on in what is called the Great Exile. This is what the Israelites were dealing with. A time where they were truly, after 20-some weeks in 1 Peter, where they truly were strangers in a strange land. They had been exiled. They had been taken away. Their lives fully displaced. Now, right before you think, well, what in the world is God thinking? Where has God gone? You need to understand this was all a part of God's plan for his people. Why in the world would God do this or allow this to be done to his people? Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the book of Jeremiah. To the book of Jeremiah for a moment. Again, to help you out, Jeremiah is in the middle of the Old Testament, but if not, go to the table of contents to find it. If you've got a pew Bible in front of you, 
Jeremiah 25 is on page 652. And here we see that God has set these events in order to teach the people of Israel something. Notice what it tells us. It says in verse 1 that the word of the Lord in Jeremiah 25 came to Jeremiah. And this happens in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Well, why does all of this stuff happen? Go down to uh, verse 4. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Although the Lord persistently sent to you all of his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has uh, given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and all these surrounding nations, and I will devote them to destruction and make them a whore, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. What that means is you're not going to have any fun. The, the celebration is over. He goes on and he says, the grinding of the millstones and the lighting of the lamps. The idea, the idea here is no celebrations and no work. Everything's going to come to a stop. It's going to be a desolate place. Notice he goes on and he says, this whole land will become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Let's stop here for a moment. Think of what these people were enduring. They now find themselves in a far-off place, and God has brought absolute desolation. And the reason why God has done so is because they would not listen to his word. Oh, church, what a reminder that we are called to obey, and that when we disobey, consequences can and will come if God deems it necessary. It's a time of great displacement. Notice it's a time of desolation. What we learn is that the days of Haggai, preceding days of Haggai, were a day where great desolation takes place. It's going to be a rebuilding process. Now think about this for a moment. The Babylonians were known for absolutely destroying everything that was in their wake. Everything that they were a part of, the armies would come and destroy all of it. There would be nothing left for them to be able to live their lives with. They find themselves as a people living, coming back to a place totally destroyed. One scholar put it this way. Much of what the Israelites would return to would be totally unrecognizable. Not only had a whole generation passed, but the Babylonians were known only to leave ruin in their wake. No systems of government, no real roadways or commerce, no opportunities for employment or schooling. Gone was the glory of a former kingdom. Gone was a great population. All that was left was rubble and ruin. And central to this ruin was the destruction of the temple. And so here's what happens. Here we have the Babylonians come. They destroy the kingdom of Israel. They take all the Israelites back with them. A couple million of them strong. And they take them and they put them in captivity in Babylon. But God is faithful. 
And while they have destroyed everything in Israel, God is doing a work. If you're in the book of Jeremiah, turn to Jeremiah 29 for a moment. Jeremiah 29, many of you know this verse by heart, but you don't know the context of it. And the context has to do with the book of Haggai. And notice Jeremiah 20, starting in verse 10, says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. After a couple generations of Israel being in captivity, being under the power of Babylon, God says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do a work in you. He says, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Here's the verse we all know. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It is then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. How's that going to happen? The Babylonians, 70 years into the captivity, are overtaken by the Persians. So what you've got is modern-day Iran attacking modern-day Iraq and the Persians winning. And the Persians under Cyrus take over Babylon and Cyrus in a dream is told by God that he is to release the Israelites to go to rebuild the temple for their God. And Cyrus does. And Cyrus says, all right, any of the Israelites who want to go back to Israel, you can go back. Now here's the thing. Of the two, two or so million people only 50,000 make a decision to go back. I mean, really, do you want to go back and try to rebuild a homeland that you haven't been a part of that's in complete desolation? We see that 50,000 go back. By the way, if you want to look at Ezra chapter 2, you'll see all of the 50,000 numbered there. This is real human events. You read it, real human history. So all of that, we've got displacement, we've got desolation. This is a time of great discouragement. 50,000 people make their way back. Think for a moment, your culture is lost. All that you love and hold dear is gone. And now you have the opportunity to go back and try to return and rebuild the house of God and try to put your life back together. Think of the desolation of our friends in Oklahoma who after a tornado try to put their lives back together. This is a picture of what is going on in the times. This is a discouraging time. God has seemed so distant, so absent. And the question is, how would we react? How would we respond? Well, notice we see that God is at work in his people as he always is. And we see that through, even though these days are difficult, that we see the dedication of a small remnant of people. There's a dedication of a small remnant. 50,000 out of a group of a couple million Make the decision, we're going to go back. We're going to be a part of the work of rebuilding. But here's the thing. The book of Haggai doesn't have nice things to say. So how in the world can we say that they were dedicated? We're going to learn that God speaks truth even to the faithful. You know that? The reason why we preach and teach the word of God to you who are faithful is because we need to hear the word from him, right? That just because we're faithful doesn't mean we can't learn anything new. Just because we're faithful doesn't mean we can't be more faithful. Just because we're faithful doesn't mean that in all ways we're faithful. And so here we have the book of Haggai being written to a group of people who are faithful, but who have some work to do. 
Notice these 50,000 people are a part of this remnant. And notice what Haggai is going to address is, first of all, what I like to say, the right people. What I mean by that is they're a dedicated group of people. They are the remnant. That word remnant is, is pregnant with connotations of holiness. The idea of a remnant is while everybody else is pursuing their own ways, this small group of people are faithful, they're righteous, they're doing the right things. And so we have a faithful group of people who say, it is not good for us to stay here in Babylon. We're going to go back and we're going to be a part of doing something different for the glory of our God. And so they're a faithful group of people. Notice the second thing, he addresses the right people who are in the right place. Haggai is written to that 50,000 people who find themselves back in Israel. They're in the right place. Now, why in the world would they want to leave Babylon after 70 years of captivity? They've no doubt rebuilt their lives. They've come accustomed to the uh, customs and the celebrations of the Babylonian Empire. And so they've, they've figured out how to live life with the Babylonians. They've got work. They've got everything that they need. Things are going pretty well for them. Why in the world would they leave? Because these faithful, devout people understood that Babylon was not their home. And they understood that if we want to see God's blessing in our life, if we want to experience the presence of God in our lives, we need to go back to Jerusalem, we need to rebuild his temple, and we need to live in the land that God gave us flowing with milk and honey. No matter how ruined it was, it would be better to live in the shacks with God than in the mansions of Babylon. And so we're going to go back. And we are going to honor God because that's where God said we belong. And so if God says we belong in the promised land, we're getting back there no matter how bad it is. And we're going to rebuild it for the glory of God. So we have the right people living in the right place. Notice they're focused in on the right project. We are told that one of the reasons why they are given the opportunity to go back, Cyrus says, is to rebuild a temple. Ezra chapter 2 talks about that. To rebuild the temple to their God. And so they've got the greatest opportunity. Are they going back to do it, just live life on their own? Are they going back just to live the good old days? No, the scripture makes it clear that these individuals go back to build the temple of God. What a great project. In essence, to go back and build the church. To get focused in on God's house and his priorities. And so we have the right people living in the right place, focused in on the right work, notice for the praise of God. Were they doing it? so that they would get praise and honor? No. Were they doing it for some misguided national ownership? No. They were doing it so that God's house may be filled with his presence and so that God would be honored. What a great group of people. Now why in the world would Haggai have such harsh words to such a great group of people? Because like you and I, the people in Haggai's day started well and finished terribly. Because about 16 years, or at the beginning, they get together, and just so you know, Ezra 2 is kind of a working commentary of the days of Haggai, and right when they depart, they raise all kinds of money for the temple to be built. I mean, talk about a faithful group of people. They say, hey, not only are we gonna go back and try to build it, but we're gonna put our money where our mouth is, and we're gonna build this temple to honor God, and they get back to Israel, and in 520, I'm sorry, in 536 B.C., they start working on the temple. But something happens, and we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, something happens where the work stops. 
They remove all the rubble where Solomon's temple was, and they build a foundation. But then the work stops. They started well and finished terribly. And Haggai comes and he says, you guys, what are you doing? You've stopped the work, the thing that you were called to do, the focus you were supposed to have, you've stopped it, and now the word of the Lord comes to them. Notice what the word of the Lord is going to say. Notice that we see the third point this morning is the distractions. Oh, you know what? Before, thank you. That's why Dennis is there. He reminds me of stuff. Just to tell you about these great people, one of the commentators puts it this way. They were characterized by affection and zeal for God's business. And this is a great thing in his sight. Not only so, but in the pursuit of that object, they had voluntarily turned away from all the magnificence and grandeur and luxury of Babylon, where after a long residence, the people of God had become thoroughly domesticated. They had it good. They faced trials and difficulties in crossing the intervening territory, and the result of their efforts and hardships was to bring them to a desolate land and ruined city. So their devotion and zeal for the business of God had been fully proved. There was nothing left to attract them to the land except to the city, into that city, except the fact that it had been chosen as God's holy land and the city which he had chosen to put his name on. These people were the right people in the right place, focused on the right project for God's praise, but they delayed in their obedience. Do you know that delayed obedience, I was told this this morning, and man, parents, you want a, you want a statement? Delayed obedience is disobedience. How many times we know what we need to do? The scripture says when a man knows what is right and does not do it, he sins. And so many of us are delayed in our obedience. And we think, well, we're just delaying our obedience. No, we're disobeying. And the people of Haggai's day were disobeying God. As dedicated as they were, they were missing it because they had given up on what that which was pleasing to God to do what was pleasing to themselves. Notice there are four sins that we're going to see in the people of Haggai that I think are alive and well in us today. Number one, misplaced priorities. Haggai chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 says the reason why they stopped building the temple of God is so they could get focused in on building their own homes. Well, they got to have a place to live, right? But the scripture makes it clear, we'll learn next week, that it wasn't just any ordinary homes, but it is given the adjective paneled homes. They were building elaborate homes for themselves. And God says, is it not time to finish my house? You say it's not the time, but who said it was time to build your paneled homes? Who said it was time to, to be about your business instead of mine? And right now, what a word for Village Bible Church. What a word, 2,500 years later, the word of Haggai still is so true for us today because so many of us have our priorities so out of whack. I mean, my goodness, we think that we're doing this great work and doing this great job, and we have, we have, what we have done is we have proven that mediocrity is the norm. Give God an hour and a half of your week and you're all good. And God is saying, man, your priorities are all messed up. You're busy working on your life and taking care of your things, and they're good and right. It is good and right to make sure you have a home for your family. It is good and right for you to work to provide for your family. But God says that he is the priority. And we're going to learn that in these weeks to come, that God is number one. And if he's not number one, then you're living a life of disobedience. 
Misplaced priorities. Notice the second thing we're going to learn in this, in this book. In Haggai chapter 2, we're going to learn about incorrect perspectives. You see, they're going to build the temple after Haggai calls them out. They're going to get to work, and it's going to be a great work. All together, they're going to get together and make the job get done. And they get the job done, and when the job is finished and the temple is built, the men and women that were there that had seen Solomon's temple before it was ruined, they start bawling. They're like, this is nothing compared to what it used to be. This is nothing. Man, Solomon's temple was filled with all kinds of grandeur, all kinds of magnificence. And this is nothing. And there are some of us who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And we're serving God. And we look at what we're doing, and we start looking at what others have done. And we start saying, well, what really good am I accomplishing? As a pastor, it's easy to look at churches down the street that are much bigger, that seemingly are having greater impacts. And it's easy for me to say, man, what have I accomplished? What have I done? That, my ministry in comparison to theirs, is nothing. And some of us need a correction to our perspective. And so there's misplaced priorities. There's incorrect perspectives. Because what God is going to tell them, he's saying this little puny temple that you've built that you think is so small and, and so little, it's going to totally outdo the glory that Solomon's temple did. And you know how it's going to do that? 500 years later, a Nazarene is going to walk in to that temple. And he's going to open the scroll from Isaiah. And he's going to say, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is going to fill that temple with his glory. It was going to take 500 years for the people of Haggai to see the total fulfillment of the work that they have done, but they're going to see it. And so we have incorrect perspectives that we're going to need to have changed in our lives as we faithfully follow God. Notice the third thing is not only misplaced priorities and incorrect perspectives, but we're going to see also unrealistic plans. You see, some had started to fall into the idea that because they were faithful in obeying God, that that was making them holy. And some of us right now are falling into those ideas as well. Our plan is, well, I'll go to church, and I'll serve you, God, and I'll do this, 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 and this, so that on the day of judgment you'll say, hey, you can come in. You've been such a good guy. You've done all these great things. Now you can come in. And what Haggai is going to say is it's not about what you do that makes you holy, but it's whom you receive. It's God's grace that we learned around the communion table today. It is about his grace and his goodness to us that we are holy because without God our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. And so they're going to learn that the plans that they have towards holiness, if they're done apart from God, are no good at all. And finally we're going to see unnecessary panic. They're going to live in a time of great fear. They're going to build this temple. They're going to do what God says. But then the questions of what if are going to come. Well, what happens when we build this temple and the Samaritans come back and they knock the temple down? What happens if we build this and another enemy comes and destroys that which we've built? And they were worried about the work they had done that it would go to rubble again. And God will say at the end of the book of Haggai, you have nothing to fear. All you need to do is obey and leave your obedience in my hands. And so the problems they're going to have are misplaced priorities, incorrect perspectives, unrealistic plans, and unnecessary panic. We're going to see Haggai speak four sermons into one of each one of these things. 
So here we have a devoted people. They've responded to God. They're doing a good thing. But now they have seen their obedience waning. I want you to understand something. Holiness is not going to be graded on a curve. And these people thought because they had stepped out in faith and done some right things and done them well, that they were all good in God's eyes. Haggai says, you know what? Holiness is a daily thing. And right when you think, and I've learned this in my own life, right when you think you've, you've, you've got it, God says you've got some other areas to fix. And in Haggai's day, Haggai's bringing a message to a faithful people who've got some work to do. So there's the history lesson. Now you say, Tim, wait a minute. Where are the funny stories? Where, where are uh, the great application points? Let me give you three very pastoral and loving application points. Number one, okay? As we look at the book of Haggai, we need to remember, first of all, we live in difficult days, so stop complaining. Very pastoral. Quit whining. Growing up in an immigrant's house, when I would cry about the things I didn't have, especially as a teenager, my father would remind me that at the ripe old age of 16 years of age, he left his family all by himself and came to America. I'm going to tell you something. Talk about a trump card. I mean, you couldn't fight that. Well, Dad, I'm struggling with this and that. Well, let me tell you, son, I left my entire family and came to a new land when I was 16 years old. Eat that up. You couldn't do it. As Christians, and I, I, let me be really pastoral, we are a bunch of babies as American Christians. Oh, woe is us. Oh, how difficult we have it. Oh, man, our president doesn't like Christians and going after us. And our schools don't like Christians and they're going after us. And our boss doesn't like Christians. And we've got it so rough and so difficult and so hard. Blah, 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 blah. Have a conversation with Carney and Lydia Duna. You want to hear about hardships? We don't even have to go to the book of Haggai. You want to hear about being taken away from your homes, running for your life? Wondering if you'll ever see your loved ones again? That's the kind of life they lived. We've got it so good, brothers and sisters. And we're so busy complaining that we're not even asking the question, in as difficult of times we live, and there is some difficulty to it, are we living it to the glory of God? Are we using the opportunities we have to pursue God's great commission in our life? But I can't do this and I can't do that. Yeah, but you still have a home. You still have freedom. There's still a lot of opportunities. And instead of whining and complaining, we need to obey. So that's pastoral prop number one. Number two, as we look at the book of Haggai, we need to understand it's easy to compare ourselves with others when we're talk, talking about spirituality. But let God do the evaluating. Remember what I said last week about running the race? We're not in competition of who's running it faster. So stop competing with one another. Stop looking down the aisle and saying, well, I'm holier than they are, so I can ease up on my race. No, you're not running against them. You're running for the glory of God. And you're to run the race that's marked out for you. And so there's some work to be done. And so when Haggai speaks these words to us in these coming weeks, it's going to be quick to look down the pew and say, well, Junior ain't doing it, and so-and-so in the other pew isn't doing it, and I'm doing okay. These people were doing okay. 
And it was easy for them to compare themselves with the people still in exile in Babylon. Well, at least we came back. At least we're doing this. And God says, I'm the one who evaluates. Don't compare. And number three, go ahead and throw that up there, Dennis. Total commitment is never easy. It's always costly. And so the book of Haggai is going to say, it's, start, it's time to start obeying. So let me close with this. Where's your commitment level with regards to God's business? Is your way of doing it God's way this hour and a half of your time? It's a start. That's obedience. Yeah, God says we need to assemble together. That's a good start. But are you obeying with all of your life? I know I'm not. I know there are a lot of things that I'm doing in my life where I'm going through the door of my ways instead of God's ways. Have you let God evaluate that? Have you let God, I mean, just ask the question this last week. Which door have you gone through? Yeah, the days are difficult. God knows it. Yeah, I know there's a lot of other people that are doing a lot of things, choosing their ways over God's ways. I get it. But are you ready to ask the question this morning and for the weeks to come that I'm going to go God's way? And every decision I make, I'm going to ask the question, God, is, is there a way I should go that seems right to you? Or am I going to go the way that seems right to me? Haggai is a book that will over and over again ask the quick question, have you considered your ways? And it would be good for us in these days to come to consider ours. Take some time this week. Read the two chapters of Haggai. And let's see what God will unfold in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord. And it's a morning of, of learning more about you and how you have in, enact, enacted your will onto human history. And so, Lord, I pray that this will allow us to, if you will, kind of set the skeleton of all that we're going to learn so that we can put some flesh onto this book. Lord, we recognize that the, your people were living in difficult times, but as bad as it was, Lord, you still called them to obedience. And so, Lord, there's no exemptions for us, even in the difficult days we live in. We need to obey. Lord, that even though we may be doing better than a lot of other people are in the way of our dedication and holiness, we need to understand that it's about your evaluation, not how we're rating against others. And Lord, it's not about waiting on obedience, but it's saying yes. Lord, how you must feel, I know as a father, how I feel when my children don't obey me when I tell them to do something. Lord, how you must feel when your children choose to disobey or delay that obedience because they want to do something else. Lord, you're going to work on our priorities. We know it. And so we need to open our ears to what priorities you will have for us. Incline our hearts and our minds to that so that we may obey you more fully this week. Lord, unfold this book for us in a powerful way in the days to come. Now send us out in the power of your spirit, Lord so that we may be a little more faithful than we were coming in this morning, so that we bring glory and honor to you. In Christ's name we pray.
and all God's people said, amen.